Reverend Pastor Tim Keller makes the point that suffering and adversity shouldn't be a surprise to us, and that the Christian faith gives us a unique perspective on how to face it. He writes this. He says, many ancients saw adversity as merely something to withstand and endure without flinching or even feeling until it goes away. Modern Western people see suffering as something like adverse weather, something that you avoid or insulate yourself from until it passes by. But he says the unusual balance of the Christian faith is seen in the metaphor of walking through darkness, swirling waters, or fire. We are not to lose our footing and just let the suffering have its way with us. But we're also not to think that we can somehow avoid it or be completely impervious to it either. We're to meet and move through suffering without shock and surprise, without denial of our sorrow and weakness, without resentment or paralyzing fear, yet also without acquiescence or capitulation, without surrender or despair. Well, the church that we're going to look at this morning in our study of the seven first century churches in Rome, to whom Jesus dictated letters, this particular church is facing enormous adversity in the form of persecution for their faith in Christ. And the people there are suffering deeply, and there is a powerful and cunning temptation in front of them to acquiesce, to capitulate, to compromise in the name of survival. And so I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And I always want to review for those of you who are new to City Church. We always have new people here. We are about five weeks into a series that we've called Seven Letters. We've named the series Seven Letters because Jesus dictated letters to be sent to seven specific churches in the Roman province of Asia who were experiencing persecution for their faith in Christ. And he dictated these letters to encourage them to stay faithful even in the midst of persecution. The letter that we're going to look at today was sent to a church in a city called Thyatira. Let's start reading in verse 18, chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Now, I want to use the same grid we've been using. I'm, I hope that's not getting boring for you, but I want to use the same grid that we've been using throughout this series to examine this letter, commendation, complaint, correction, and comfort. Okay, that's the grid that we've been using. All of these letters seem to take that same form. Verse 19 represents Jesus' commendation of this church. And there is a great deal in this church to commend, apparently. By my, by my count, he commends them for five things that are all summarized by the word deeds. He commends them for their love, for their faith, for their service, for their perseverance, and for their growth. He says they're doing more than they did at first. They're a growing, spiritually growing church. And I got to tell you that if I got that evaluation of City Church from Jesus, I would feel like spiking the ball in the end zone or spiking the Bible on the stage or spiking something. I'd spike something. I don't know what. That's an awesome evaluation. Look at that list. He commends them for their love, which I take it means their love for him, for, for one another, for people in general. What an incredible thing to be commended for by Jesus, who is the very definition of love. I mean, imagine Mozart telling you that you are a wonderful musician. Or, and, 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 and I have to swallow hard to say this. Imagine Tom Brady telling you that you're a terrific quarterback. 
Jesus once told his disciples that the world would know that they were his disciples by their love for one another. And he said that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the very commendation that they are receiving. This is high praise indeed for this church. And he also commends them for their faith. It was an active, persevering, serving faith. These people weren't the kind of people who just merely had an intellectual belief in Christ. Their faith in Christ is increasingly being integrated into the rest of their lives. And I've said, I've said this on many different occasions. I even, I, in fact, I mentioned it last week, that the Hebrew word that describes the kind of life that God desires for his people is the word shalom. It's a word that means wholeness, wholeness of life, a peace security, an overall sense of well-being. In short, it's a, a life that is flourishing. God is good, you see, and, and what he wants for you is shalom. Another facet of shalom, perhaps another way that you could describe shalom, is, is integration. And I don't know if you know what I mean by integration, but, but it's the idea that, that all of the parts that make up you are increasingly becoming aligned with one another, your thoughts, your emotions, your mind, your body, your will, your, your worldview, your outlook on life, the way you treat people, all of these are, becoming, are increasingly becoming integrated. That's what God wants for you. But I say becoming integrated because integration isn't natural. Our natural state as sinners disintegrates us over the course of our lives. I mean, think about it on a national level. Racism would be an example of disintegration. The state of political discourse in America today would be another example of disintegration. Misogyny, the degradation of women, that's disintegration. We could go on and on. That's the disintegrating effect of sin on the human race on a large scale. On a little smaller scale, sin disintegrates families, marriages, friendships, communities, And frankly, sin has even disintegrated more than a few churches. And then sin disintegrates us on an individual level too. Like when you know something is wrong and you do it anyway, you are experiencing disintegration. Your intellect and your will are not integrated. When something happens that should bring deep sadness to you, but you feel detached from it, that's disintegration integration. Your emotions and your mind and your body are not integrated. And of course, as you age, you begin to realize that your body is literally disintegrating with the final and the ultimate act of disintegration being death. The Bible teaches that faith in Christ is the catalyst for integration. It is the thing that that reverses the inertia of our natural tendency toward disintegration, faith in Christ. As we learn to obey him, Christ integrates what sin wants to disintegrate. And Jesus is commending these people because their faith is increasingly integrating their lives, manifesting itself in love, service, perseverance, overall spiritual growth. What a commendation for this church. This is really really a very fine evaluation when you take into consideration what Jesus is going to talk about next. It's so encouraging to me 
that Jesus sees the best. He sees the good. Even though he sees what's wrong, he sees the good. And he commends these people for it. This is a great evaluation, but no church is perfect. And not everyone in in this church in Thyatira is growing. There is something that is threatening to disintegrate this church that they're tolerating, and Jesus isn't having it. Let's move on and look at Jesus' complaint against this church, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, uh, Jezebel wasn't this woman's actual name, of course. Uh, If you were here last week, you may remember uh, that in the letter to Pergamum, Jesus did something very similar. He, he, He talked about what appears to be a really very similar teaching of the first century Nicolaitans. He says that that was nothing more than a recycled version of a strategy that a false prophet named Balaam had used a thousand years earlier to undermine the people of Israel. Well, that's what he's doing here when he refers to this woman in the church as Jezebel. Jezebel was a wife of one of the worst kings of Israel. Uh, His name was Ahab. Jezebel was an outsider to Israel. She grew up as a worshiper of a pagan fertility god named Baal. Worship of Baal involved cultic sex, orgies, temple prostitutes, both male and female, among other sexually immoral acts. Jezebel was responsible for introducing and spreading the degraded worship of Baal widely among the ten tribes of Israel until it became one of the popular religions of the day in a nation to which God had said that they were to have no other gods before him. They were to worship him and him alone, and he would be their god. Well, whoever this woman in this church was, Jesus describes her teaching as a recycled version of Jezebel's influence in Israel thousands of years earlier. One of the things that we know about Thyatira from archaeological digs is that there were many different trade guilds in Thyatira. What I mean by that is organized groups and associations, unions, if you will, um, for potters and tanners and dyers and, and, and bronze workers and the like. And in order to work in these guilds, I mean, this was the, this was the commerce of the, of the city. And in order to work, if you, were, if you wanted a job, in order to work in these guilds, Christians had to join a union made up of pagans for the most part. And that wasn't a problem in and of itself. The problem was that the meetings of these guilds were devoted to the sexually immoral practices of the erotic idols of the Greek world. Uh, The great British Bible scholar William Barclay gives us some insight into the pressure that these Christians in Thyatira must have felt. He says this, he says, "These (laughs) These guilds met frequently, and they met for a common meal. Such a meal was, at least in part, a religious ceremony. It would probably meet in a heathen temple, and it would certainly begin with a libation of the gods. And the meal itself would largely consist of meat offered to idols. And the official position of the church meant that a Christian could not attend such a meal. So there was the sexual immorality, and then there was the eating of the food that was sacrificed to idols. Whoever this woman was that Jesus refers to as Jezebel, we're going to read later, we'll read later in this letter. She claimed to have some deep knowledge I don't know, perhaps she claimed that Christ had spoken to her. You hear that all the time these days, don't you? That somebody said, Christ spoke to me about something. 
She claimed to have some deep knowledge telling her that it was all right for the Christians in Thyatira to join in these pagan religious ceremonies. There was no conflict, she said, between worshiping Christ and acquiescing to the demands of the guilds to participate in their sexually degrading worship rites and and eat meat sacrificed to these idols. After all, she said, they had to learn to earn a living. I mean, business is business, right? I mean, these people had mouths to feed, and she was teaching that there was no need to suffer persecution, to be shut out of their work, to be jobless because of their faith in Christ, acquiesce, capitulate, surrender. And you can imagine how enticing her teaching must have been. In fact, it was so enticing that Jesus said that some of the people in this church were indeed being led astray by it. I was struck by something in the quote I read a few moments ago from the pastor and the author, Tim Keller. I was struck by the fact that he said that the Bible teaches us that as it relates to suffering and adversity... And I'm going to read this to you again. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I just want to read this part to you again. He says that as as it relates to suffering and adversity, Christians are not to think that we can somehow avoid it or be completely impervious to it either. We are to meet and to move through suffering, listen to this, without shock and surprise. And if tomorrow you faced some kind of moral challenge at work, something that required that you make a choice between honoring Christ and perhaps suffering the loss of your job or acquiescing and avoiding the suffering, would you be prepared for that? Would you be ready for it? Would you be shocked if that happened tomorrow? Would you be surprised? And if you would be surprised, why? Do you not realize that there is an enemy who wants nothing more than to disintegrate your life, to get you to capitulate, to surrender, to acquiesce to whatever compromise there is in front of you, to disintegrate you in punishing, punishing ways? There's an enemy that wants that. One of the repeated themes in the New Testament is that we're to be alert, on guard, watching for the ploys of the devil because, it's very, because he is very real. First uh, Peter 5, 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How prepared are you for such a challenge to your faith? How prepared would you be to pick up your cross and follow Christ, even if it meant losing a job? Or maybe losing a significant client? Or maybe losing a significant amount of business? These people were facing even greater pressure than that, the prospect not of losing a job, but of never being able to get one. And the amazing thing is that many of them were remaining faithful even in the midst of such crushing adversity. 
I said it a few weeks ago, but the stunning message of these seven letters is that it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than it is to go on living. Not everyone in this church, though, is remaining faithful. And, of course, the danger was that not only would their lives disintegrate, but that that disintegration would spread throughout the whole church. And, again, a part of the temptation, and we saw this last week as well, was the issue of sexual immorality and idolatry. There's a link between sexual immorality and idolatry all throughout the Bible, and it makes perfect sense because once you choose to reject the creator of sex, uh, the creator of sex's boundaries for sex, he's no longer your functional God. I mean, like you may still believe in him, but he's not your functional God. At that point that you've rejected his boundaries for sex, you've moved into idolatry. It may be idolatry of sex. It may be that you have made your boyfriend or your girlfriend your idol, willing to do anything that he or she wants you to do just to keep them. Maybe you've made the opinion of your friends or your work peers or the culture as a whole uh, your idol. You adopt their views on human sexuality rather than be ridiculed for sticking to the boundaries for sex that God has laid out so clearly in the Bible. But you've moved from God as your authority over sex into sex or something else as your functional God. And I realize that even as I say this, some of you think, and, and, and i got to tell you, if I live to be 100 years old, I will never understand this line of thinking. But some of you think, well, of course, you're a pastor. You have a bias about sex that it has to be between a man and a woman in marriage only. I'm going to tell you, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I do not know how to disavow you of that ridiculous notion in any other way than to just be very real here with you this morning at the risk of offending some people. Why in the world would my bias be to keep sex within the boundaries of a man and a woman in marriage only. If you look at the male species throughout human history, what signs do you see that heterosexual men naturally have a bias for sex to be confined to one woman for life and marriage only? Seriously, now? Like if God said, have sex with as many women as you want to, what heterosexual guy do you know who wouldn't jump for joy? Now, you might say, yeah, but you're a pastor, and pastors are not sexual beings. That's the second dumbest thing that I've ever heard. <laughs> I know a lot of pastors, and I don't know any who don't enjoy sex as much as any other guy. And I would think, frankly, that by the number of pastors who've blown up their churches and their lives and their families through a sexual affair, that that would be proof enough of that reality. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to speak for the majority of evangelical, conservative, male pastors, theologians, Bible commentators everywhere, when I say that like any other man, our natural, unchecked, fleshly inertia moves toward less restrictions on sex than more restrictions on sex. Now, if you're offended by my saying this, please, by all means, Send emails to Dustin Krantz. 
Because I'm not going to read them. I'm not trying to be crude here. I'm trying to make a point. My point being, what's the self-serving motive for someone like me to say God's boundaries for sex are as true today as they ever were? What's in that for me? Believe me, if I or any other conservative pastor or scholar could find a biblical loophole that legitimately makes sense, we'd be all over it. It's just not there. And you say, well, but there's the whole LGBTQ thing. You're just being intolerant and hateful to gays. Well, again, let me ask you, what would be my motive for wanting to hold to God's boundaries for sex between a married man and a woman? Do you think that I enjoy being called a homophobe? Like, do you think I like being called intolerant? I got to tell you something. I like people. I like getting along with people. I do not dig telling people, many of whom seem like very nice people, that what their sexual preferences and practices are, uh, that their sexual preferences and practices are wrong. I don't like telling them that. I've read the books and the articles that say that the Bible doesn't prohibit homosexuality, and I've studied the relevant passages and how people attempt to prove what they're saying. And if it were good biblical scholarship, I would be thrilled. I would dance a jig. If I could find a loophole on heterosexual sex and homosexual sex, sex, I would call a special service. I would advertise on every media outlet I could. I would promote it on social media, put a banner outside the church, and I would title my sermon, Just Do It. (laughs) And then I would add, with any consenting adult you want. Do you know how much of a relief that would be? Like, I wouldn't have to be ripped on the Tri-State Alliance website. I wouldn't be called hateful. City Church would grow exponentially. Listen, I'd become the most popular pastor around. Why wouldn't I want that? What self-benefiting reason is there for me and other conservative pastors and theologians to hold the line on God's boundaries for sex? Wake up, people. There is none. The reason that God has placed sex within its boundaries is that it is now and has always been both awesome and powerful. And it's like water in that sense. Water is fantastic and it's powerful. But when a river or an ocean flows outside of its boundaries, it can devastate people, communities, whole cities, and it can disintegrate everything it touches. And so can sex when it flows outside of the boundaries that God in his goodness has created for us. Who's the authority over your sex life? Uh, What rationalizations have you made about sex? What capitulation have you made to a boyfriend or to a girlfriend or to someone else or to the culture at large in order to just be accepted. Because I want you to notice how seriously Jesus takes this. Let's do this under the heading of correction. Jesus speaks to three parties in this next section of the letter. And the discipline and the judgment that he assesses against this woman's teaching reflects the sickness reflects the sickness, the disintegration that idolatry and sexual immorality always bring. And in the interest of time, I'm going to read all of these together. He starts with Jezebel, this woman that he calls Jezebel. And frankly, Jesus' words are chilling. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, 
but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. It's too late for this woman. Time's up. Then he speaks to those who commit adultery with her. Verse 22. And I will make those people who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways. And then finally he says, I will strike her children dead. He's not talking about infants and little boys and girls. He's talking about the people who are not only practicing immorality, but who are teaching it as well. And it seems to me that when he uses the word dead here, he's talking about the ultimate form of disintegration, which is spiritual death. And the result of all of this will be, verse 22, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Look, let me be honest with you about something. I really don't know how these verses apply to a church like City Church, because frankly, no one here is teaching that it's possible to capitulate, to acquiesce to the culture and follow Christ at the same time. We're not teaching that. So in what sense do these judgments and disciplines apply to us? I can't really say. I think there are three lessons that we can walk away with from them. The first is that Jesus takes the health and the well-being of his church very seriously. You may take the church casually, but he does not. And he will do whatever it takes to prevent his church from disintegrating. That's one thing. Here's the second thing. The timeless king of the universe is not down with our culture's view of sexuality. He doesn't see it as revolutionary or sophisticated or evolved. And again, by using the name of Jezebel, like he did with the name Balaam last week, Jesus is telling us that all of the new understandings and, pers- and perspectives on sex in our culture today are nothing more than recycled versions of strategies that Satan has been using throughout human history to disintegrate people, families, communities, and yeah, even, even churches. Jesus, Jesus doesn't see all of this as evolved and sophisticated. It's just recycled, tried, and tired. And third, if you find yourself this morning in some kind of ongoing sexual sin, there is hope and forgiveness available for you through repentance. That's the correction for the complaint Jesus has against this church. But understand that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and there is no repentance, there will come a point in which his patience will run out with your sin and you will experience discipline of some kind. But even the purpose of that discipline will be to bring you to repentance so that you can experience shalom, integration, not disintegration. And not only that, but also to protect the integrity of his church and the other people in it. And it's those people Jesus has in mind when he says, In verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. And then he offers them a comfort, a promise. Verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Then he quotes a passage. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and read this passage on your own, perhaps later on today. He quotes from a passage in Psalm 2, which was a prophecy about him. 
The prophecy was, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. He says, I'll give you authority just as I have received authority from my father. And then he says, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what's all this, what's all this about? Well, look, depending upon your eschatology, your theology of how things in the end are going to happen, there are a number of different ways that we could chop this up. But the big picture is simply this. That God has a plan for the universe. He's going to heal the decay and the disintegration of the world. He's going to heal the disharmony of things. He's going to conquer all of the forces of evil in this world, seeking to disintegrate what God wants together. But the irony of all ironies is that the healing of the world had to come first through the disintegration of the Son of God. Do you realize that's what happened to Jesus on the cross? He came apart on the cross for your sins and mine in ways that no one ever has. Before the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his death, Jesus said that his soul was sorrowful, even to death. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm coming apart. I feel myself disintegrated. By becoming sin on the cross, the very thing that makes the world disintegrate, sin, By becoming sin on the cross, the justice of God was poured out on Jesus to the point of disintegration and ultimate physical disintegration, death. But three days after his death, Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering death. And later in the book of Revelation, Jesus describes himself when he says, I am the bright and morning star. There's a new day. There's a new day coming. The comfort that Jesus gave here is that for those who overcome, his resurrection is proof that he will triumph in the end and that whatever they have had to suffer for their faith will one day be avenged and that they will be his for all of eternity in a world in which everything is exactly the way that God designed it to be. Hold on, Jesus says, because he's coming. And in the end, you will triumph with him. That's the comfort that he's giving these people. And it's the comfort that he would give you, and it's the comfort that he would give us as a church here at City Church. So many good things about this church that I think Jesus would commend. But I know, too, that in a culture like ours, it's very difficult, very difficult to not acquiesce to the idolatry and the sexual immorality in our culture. Jesus would say to you, repent. There's forgiveness. There's healing. Repent. Do not let your life disintegrate under the temptation that Satan has been using to, dis- to disintegrate people and families and cultures for thousands of years. Don't do it. Don't fall prey to that teaching. Hold on. Hold on. He's coming. And you'll triumph with him in the end. Let's pray together. This is hard teaching in the 21st century. I guess it's been hard teaching probably throughout history. Certainly in our culture, Lord, where every message from every media outlet is do with your your body what you want to do with it. 
But all of that teaching in the Bible is just, oh, it's unsophisticated and it's ancient and it's old school and it doesn't apply anymore and blah, blah, blah. Lord, I pray for the people here that perhaps find themselves in some kind of sexual sin. I pray, for, I pray that they would heed your words and that they would come to a place of repentance. Maybe it's a couple. Maybe they're dating. Maybe they need to come together on their knees together and that they need to own their sin. They need to confess. Maybe it's somebody who's living together. And maybe the thing that they could do is not only confess, but to make it right and to say, let's stop living together. Let's, let's get married. And maybe that would even mean moving up the marriage date. And maybe that would even mean that they would have a just a small wedding at first, and then maybe later something bigger for family, but that they could make it right. Maybe there are people here who have capitulated, acquiesced to the culture's view on sex in other ways. Maybe they're afraid of being ridiculed. Would you remind them, would you encourage them that you're coming, that you are good, you're not trying to withhold from anybody. And would you encourage them not to be surprised by the ridicule and the suffering and the adversity that believers in you experience in this culture because you were ridiculed. You suffered. And if they ridicule and suffer and kill you, then they will ridicule and they suffer. They cause your followers to suffer. And some of them even die, like you did. Let us not be shocked or surprised by that. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.